afternoon and welcome to the Jason Ranch Show on AM 770 KTTH, streaming on the KTTH smartphone app. There was another mass shooting in Seattle, and it should be clear as day if it isn't already. This is a city that we deserve, and that is what's trending. What's trending? Crime. An early morning shooting left three people dead, six people injured in South Seattle. It happened on Sunday, about 4.30 in the morning at a hookah bar. Now, the SPD, Seattle Police Department, isn't offering details on what led to the shooting. I've spoken to a few sources, and it sounds very strongly like it's yet another gang-related shooting. But you wouldn't know that listening to any of our local leaders who, for some reason, never want to say gang. Literally. I mean that literally. They don't like to use the term gang. Gang member. Mob of unruly young people who break the law. They just don't want to do that. Which, of course, means we're never actually going to solve this problem. Because despite this being the third mass shooting that is very clearly connected, as have the others been, to gang violence, just in the last 30 or so days, on Friday when I wasn't here, I posted at KTTH.com, there was a drive-by shooting at a vigil for someone who was the victim of another shooting. That drive-by, no one wanted to participate or cooperate with the cops. Okay? Despite all this happening, Bruce Harrell has nothing new to say whatsoever. He had his spokesperson fill out his blame guns, Mad Libs. It's just a statement. Mad Libs version of blame guns. It's the progressive Mad Libs. He puts that out in a statement on X, formerly known as Twitter. And he doesn't accept any blame. For what's been going on. He doesn't acknowledge the crime crisis in any meaningful way whatsoever. He doesn't announce reforms. He doesn't say, hey, I understand that policy X is responsible for this. We're going to take it back. We're going to rescind. We've learned our lessons. No more bloodshed. Nope. He blames guns. No place in this country is free from the awful epidemic of gun violence which once again reverberates here in Seattle. Wow, it's really powerful stuff. Man, you made me change my view. You know, before, I wasn't really just blaming this gun. I was kind of focused on the person who was pulling the trigger, but now all of a sudden I realize the errors of my way. Thank you so much, Bruce Harrell. He doesn't explain who's responsible for pulling the trigger. He never does. He never calls out the criminal. He never calls out a criminal because... I'm willing to bet if we ever find who's responsible that they're going to be the beneficiary of some Democrat soft on crime policy or law. Guarantee. And I take that position because generally speaking, I know everyone has to have a first time that they use their gun and shoot someone and kill someone. But usually when we're dealing with these kinds of crimes, they have a history of breaking the law. Maybe it started off like with armed robbery, carjackings, and then you graduate to this level of degenerate crime. But something tells me you're going to find the person responsible having a background of being a beneficiary of the policies that Bruce Harrell either supports or doesn't mention the need to rescind. You had yesterday Chief Adrian Diaz completely ignore the issue of gang violence 
to again tell us it's about the gun. We are seeing more rounds being fired, and that is where the trauma you know, occurs. And that's hmm. really what we're also trying to figure out. How do we stop this? How do we make our communities you know, safer? You know, I was listening this morning to Brian Suits, who mentioned what an odd observation to make that we're seeing more bullets being fired. And that's where the real trauma comes from, the number of bullets. While I I certainly concede, I guess, that you could be more traumatized when there's 100 bullets fired, 100 rounds fired versus one. Okay. I would expect us all to be somewhat traumatized to be shot at, to maybe even be shot, or to see someone be shot and killed. That's the part, regardless of the number of bullets, that's probably creating the most trauma for the ones who are there, but also creating the most angst in a community. Right now, in Seattle, at this very moment, we have 47 homicides. 47. We are on pace for a record high. The previous record, back in 2020, was at 57. It took a slight dip. I believe it was 49 in 2021. Last year was 56. So it came right up to meeting that 25-year homicide high. We're at 47 right now. So it puts us on pace to either meet or exceed that previous record. Have I seen this before? I have not seen this to to this magnitude in 26 years of policing. In 26 years of policing, I have never seen it to this magnitude. The gun violence. It's gang violence, gangs using guns, but okay. That's a long time to have never seen something. One might think, given that observation, which is the observation of many officers who have worked in Seattle for a while, it's the observations, it should be the observations of anyone who's lived in Seattle for more than the last few years. Something might to the normal person, hear something like that and get a little triggering thought of, are we doing anything differently now? Man, why didn't we see this level of violence a decade ago? What's different? Oh, I know all those policies that were put in place. All those laws that were passed. Oh, hey, I guess the answer is really simple. The answer is really simple on how to stop this. Because the answer is really simple as to why we're seeing this kind of crime wave. Why are we seeing it? Seattle criminals, just like Tacoma criminals and criminals all across Washington state, they rarely face serious repercussions for their crimes. When they're youth, oh my God, almost certainly going to suffer not a single consequence. No matter how dangerous they are. At the absolute worst the worst possible thing that could happen is they get a light prison sentence, and we're now talking about adults, where thanks to these faux concerns over equity mean that they'll be released before they even settle into that jail cell and finally feel comfortable using the toilet in front of everybody else in that cell and on that wing. Before they even get to that point where they say, okay, I can make this work, it's only a few more years, they're released. Because hashtag equity. Jails don't work. Jails work in keeping the rest of us safe. While I would prefer anyone who goes to jail reforms, realizes the error of their ways, 
gets on the right path, tries to better themselves. That's what I would prefer. If that doesn't happen, okay. Okay. But they're in jail and they're not going to shoot me or stab me or steal from me? Okay, good. That's, that's what I care about. I care less about the criminal because that criminal cared less about me. And we are all safer when they're in jail. And yet Democrats are releasing them in record numbers as part of their depopulating the prison crusade. So at worst, someone goes to jail for a small amount of time before being released. And the rest of them, what happens? They get pushed into restorative justice programs that don't work, that have little to no oversight. What's not so little, of course, is their growing budgets. Despite having few results, despite actually getting people quote-unquote, restored, they get more and more and more and more monies, budgets, I should say, and responsibilities. That's the truth. That's what happens. Immediately when somebody is confronted, we're finding that conflict literally being uh, pulling out a gun and being able to resolve it with a gun. Wow. So you're telling me people are getting into some kind of argument and their response is to pull out a gun and shoot the other person and art therapy doesn't work on them so odd weird you would think that music therapy at least would work getting together in groups where community leaders claim that the criminal is actually the victim of a system of oppression perpetuated by white supremacy culture blah 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 blah. you mean that stuff doesn't work on them weird criminals know they can get away with almost anything And so that's exactly how they act. That's why we see, in some instances, just brazen crime. Sometimes in the middle of the day, in broad daylight. And not a single Democrat seems interested in taking this issue head on. I was on Fox News at night on Friday. In fact, I'll be on Hannity today talking about crime in the area. But I was on on Friday and we were talking about D.C., Washington, D.C., of course, and I write about this extensively in my book, What's Killing America. I got paid to write it and everything. That they passed a whole bunch of just wacky policies that went light on crime, right? They tried to even rewrite their criminal code. They went so far to the left. They were pushing the defunding nonsense. They were nuts. And unsurprisingly, crime exploded. And so now they're trying to walk everything back. And they're trying to get tough on crime. And there was a quote. I can't remember if it was from the mayor, Muriel Bowser, because I read it. can't remember if it was from her or if it was from a council member. But someone said that we need to think about innovative policing. We need innovation. And I would argue we don't need innovation. We need to quite literally do what we were doing just a few years ago when we didn't have this crime crisis. We had for a very long time, since the 80s, with the exception of a little bit of a spike in the mid-90s, violent crime going down. What were we doing? Were we innovative? No, we really weren't. We didn't need to be. What we decided to do was take crime seriously. That's it. What does that mean? It means we arrest bad guys, we prosecute, we put them in jail. That's what it means. And it should mean that whether you're listening right now in Seattle, 
or Tacoma or Bellingham or Monroe or Spokane. It doesn't matter. City leaders need to endorse the idea that we do things the way we used to do them. I know, I know that there will be Democrat leaders who are uncomfortable because they, during their BLM grift, and that is exactly what it was, they told us about how inequitable policing used to be. And thanks to their efforts at criminal justice reform, things are finally safe enough for a black person to walk the streets without feeling like they're going to be shot and killed by cops. Sure, the data never backed that up, and the entire BLM movement was based on a lie about policing. But can they actually walk that stuff back? If they don't, we're going to continue to see the same results. Chief Diaz said it. I haven't seen this in 26 years. So let's go back to the last year before you started to see this surge and do things exactly the same way. Take crime seriously, regardless of the race or gender identity of the suspect. Push out all the equity woke politics garbage. We have to deal with violent criminals aggressively, regardless of their age. And look, if Democrats believe so strongly in restorative justice programs, and I, by the way, think they can work in certain circumstances, provide those programs to the individual while they're serving time. Instead of keeping them out of jail, out of prison, so that they can re-victimize a community. We're not talking about the kid who was caught stealing a Kit Kat from the 7-Eleven. I was going to go with Butterfinger, but that felt too... I think I used that one before. How about this? They're not stealing a 100 grand, which is a candy bar, from the 7-Eleven. Who would steal 100 grand? Those are pretty good. They're good, but are they worth stealing? No one ever goes to it first, but the second that you actually have one, you say, why don't I go to this as my my go-to candy bar? Fair point. We're not talking about that kid. Restorative justice has a place for that kid. When you have a gun on you while you're stealing that candy bar, yeah, that's when I'm not okay with restorative justice. When you use that gun, I am certainly not okay with restorative justice. The safety of the community is not worth giving that criminal a second or third or fourth or 100th chance to get on the right track. This time they'll do it. No, they won't. And I don't think it's worth the risk that they pose to everybody else, including you guys at home, your kids, your friends. If it's a judge or a prosecutor that goes easy on a criminal, let's call them out by name. Any politician could do that. They choose not to. I would argue we should put pressure on anyone who puts their own ideology above community safety. Call me crazy. But we should pressure those people to do the right thing. If they're disinterested in putting criminals in jail, dangerous people in jail, go work for the King County Public Defenders Group. Go work as a defender. Because that's a fringe group of abolitionists. They're the ones say, oh, it's white supremacy culture, the criminal justice. Go work for them. Go work for them and keep bad guys out of jail. Don't do that as a prosecutor or a judge. And when they act that way, we should call them all out. And the SPD has to be a really big part of this. Community policing matters. Proactive policing matters. Being visible matters. Definitely need some policing on gun control. And wherever the, where's the policing at when 
the establishments get out at two o'clock in the morning. I, I don't know. Um, continuous gunfire, continuous retaliation. Like it doesn't seem like it's going to end. She lives in the area. She spoke with Como TV. You notice she said retaliation at the end there. Retaliation. Why? What kind of criminals are we talking about? Gang members. She knows. We all know what's going on. And she asks a valid question. Where are all the cops? Well, here's the answer. Y'all ran them out of town. That's the truth. During the Black Lives Matter riots and rallies, you have the council defund police. They promised 50%. They got to only about 18%. They demonized cops. And nearly 600 of them left. We might even have already passed the 600 mark. I don't have last month's numbers yet. I'll get them soon. We might already be past 600 cops leaving a force with under, they say, a thousand officers who are deployable, a number I don't believe. I think it's way lower than that. We don't have enough cops. One thing that we could do to help address that issue beyond just, you know, not demonizing them is provide a long overdue contract. They're working without a contract. They should be paid the highest in the state because they're the ones dealing with the most danger. And anyone who's listening right now, let's say you're a cop in Everett, maybe you're a Pierce County Sheriff's deputy. Just remember, they have to deal with people like Shama Sawan. Every single one of those officers right now said, okay, you know, that's a fair point. They should maybe make more money than me. The city should, God forbid, and I know this is going to go out on a limb and even saying this, it could get me canceled. Maybe make hires, make your recruitment about getting the right person for the job, regardless of their military status or their race. I know I said it. You would think any honest media would have covered my story last week or two weeks ago about the Seattle memo from the mayor's office on recruitment efforts, making it crystal clear that they are not interested in hiring white men and military veterans. You would think maybe even some of the reporters who DM'd me slipped into my DMs to say, oh, that's a great story. That's outrageous. That's nuts. You would think that maybe some of their outlets might find that story interesting. Eh, They passed. They passed. If it's not gang violence that we're dealing with, what are we dealing with? Drug use, homelessness. You had last week, and I wasn't on the air for this. I was off, but the guy who was arrested for the encampment fire on the I-5 on-ramp released no charges. The encampment, by the way, is still there. What message does that send? It sends a very clear message. We can do whatever it is we want to do. No consequences. No consequences. I've been following what's going on in San Francisco. I've been covering it a lot on TV, and I wrote a lot about San Francisco in my upcoming book. But I've been paying close attention to San Francisco because it is quite literally imploding in real time. It is dying right before our eyes. And it's happening because of a council, a mayor, and let's be clear, voters who pushed through and supported extremist policies. Some of them have changed their tune, right? They're starting to walk some of this back. They're starting to at least attempt to go after the rampant drug use in downtown. It might be too late. They perhaps waited a little bit too long. 
and we not we, we might not be able to save San Francisco. And the problem is for me, as someone who lives in Seattle, Seattle isn't that far behind San Francisco. No matter what people will tell you, we're not that far behind. But voters could actually do something. You could save the city that you pretend to love. I say pretend because if you love the city, you wouldn't allow it to get this bad. We have an election coming up. We could boot every single incumbent to the curb. Do we? No. We didn't during the primary. Are we going to do it during the general? Eh, I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm not going to pretend that I think that this time around anything's going to change in Seattle because I don't believe that. So my book, What's Killing America, which is available for pre-order right now, I hope you'll buy it. I was studying for that book all the reasons behind why so many Democrat-run cities are experiencing virtually the same crises, right? Surge in violent crime, homelessness, drug use, all while weirdly cost of living is going up. And what I found was they have a whole lot in common. Far left policies pushed through by radical left lawmakers. The writing is on the wall. Only Seattle can save itself. But here's the reality. We get the city that we deserve. We get the government that we deserve. And because the same people keep voting in the same politicians who propose and pass the same policies, we are now living in a city that we deserve to live in. I think we deserve better. So I only hope that we will actually save this city. Otherwise, not only do we continue to fail, not only will people continue to die, but it won't be reversible. It might be irredeemable. 1-800-465-8770 for your texts. You're listening to The Jason Rancho. Welcome back to The Jason Rancho. Thank you so much for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. There's a new poll out of Iowa. Iowa, of course, being at least for the Republicans, the first presidential caucus. First time voters will get to go out and declare who they support amongst the, I think, last count, 412 people running for president on the Republican side. And it's a poll from CBS News and YouGov. Donald Trump is way ahead of the pack. Way ahead. But there was a poll question that I want to focus on. The percentages of people who say they trust Donald Trump versus friends and family, conservative media figures, and religious leaders is very high. Now, the caveat being these are Trump supporters, so obviously they're going to trust him. But it's the comparison between the different groups that's a little shocking, I think. Trump is at 71%. Friends and family, 63%. Conservative media figures, 56%. I'm assuming I was not amongst the conservative media figures that they were. No, they put a I'm, side note saying yeah. you weren't a part of that. Otherwise, it would have skewed very, very high. And then they say religious leaders at 42%, which is shockingly low. 
Now, when you ask that same question, or at least uh, to, to do the same ranking by percentage to just GOP primary voters, not just Trump supporters, it's at 53% trusting him, which former president totally makes sense to me. But it doesn't necessarily match some of the other polls that we've seen. For example, Fox News just did a survey. And again, this was looking at everyone. So a little bit of a caveat, but they found a more than two to one margin, 67% to 31%, saying the phrase honest and trustworthy does not describe Donald Trump. And so people, particularly on the left, are trying to figure out this new poll. What? Where is it coming? What? Huh? What? It's not that hard to figure out, especially if you talk to people who aren't just crazy liberals who live in the on the West Coast and East Coast, which is generally how a lot of these media figures converse. They just talk amongst themselves, basically, about everyone else who they look down upon. But talk to a hardcore Trump supporter, which the number has been about 30 percent of the Republican base are the hardcore Trump supporters. And they love him and trust him because he speaks their language. He speaks to them. He passed policies that helped them, not hurt them. That's why. That's why they've earned some loyalty. However, there is a subset of that 30% that are, I would agree with some of folks on the left saying cult-like. There's no doubt. Let's be honest. Maybe some of you are listening. That Donald Trump can do no wrong. And even the idea of offering tepid criticism, you earn a wrath from this, these kinds of folks unlike anything you've ever experienced. That's the cult-like stuff. Now, Joe Scarborough today, this morning, tried to suss through and understand the data, and he made the cult response. Let's listen and react. This was about Donald Trump. How could people support Donald Trump? And the question just kept coming up and there were really no good answers uh, except, you know, the question is, is it a cult? Is it a cult? I mean, you look at it, de- Charlie, uh, you look at the definition, cult leaders, uh, I just saw this on, on Google uh, off the top, cult leaders must be dynamic, charismatic and convincing because their mm-hmm. goal is to control their members to acquire money or power-related advantages. Now we're just reading definitions. These uh, characteristics are crucial uh, because the cult leader needs his members to strictly adhere to his teachings and doctrines. Well, the funny thing there is it doesn't really fit there because Donald Trump doesn't really have any teaching or doctrine other than no. follow me blindly. So it isn't a cult? Did we go through all of that? You read the definition and then you say, oh, actually, it's not a cult. So I'm not going to respond to his criticisms because... It's not really worth it, right? Joe Scarborough, who used to suck up to Donald Trump, was broken by Donald Trump, and now he is overcompensating, hoping that people don't realize he was a big Trump supporter. Same with Mika Brzezinski. Their response is lazy. It's what you get. They had on, what's his name, Charlie, um, the, the the former conservative talk show host from Minnesota, who now goes on as a never-Trumper MSNBC 
to just rag on not even just Donald Trump anymore, just ragging on Republicans in general. But when he was talking, and I heard this audio this morning on the Brian Suits morning show, something struck me as ironic. Because let's be honest here, almost every single president and some candidates who don't go through achieve a cult-like status amongst a certain number of Americans. That is going to be the case in the future. It was the case in the past. It is the case in the current. This is not going anywhere. But do you all not remember even a moment of the Obama presidency? Like not even just a tiny bit? You mean to tell me that wasn't about the cult of personality? Some folks literally, and I'm using that term correctly, compared Obama to Jesus Christ. The same way some folks on the right, that subset of the 30%, treat Donald Trump or compare to Donald Trump. Same thing. And I will never get this haunting song out of my head. One performed by young kids in, in Venice, California, along with their parents and some volunteer teacher who is the conductor. I will never get this song out of my head. We're gonna spread happiness. We're gonna spread freedom. Obama's gonna change it. Obama's gonna lead them. I mean, this is creepy. Yes? It's creepy how much of the words you know. I will never get this song out of my head. We're going to change the world. And now all the other kids get involved. Oh, look, it's the piano solo. Let's do it. And by the way, while they're doing this, they're doing the one person doing uh, sign language. We don't need it, okay? Let's save the deaf from this. You would be doing them a service. If anything, give us subtitles somewhere, because I don't even know what they're saying. At some point when too many people sing, especially when they're kids, especially when it's at a high pitch, you don't really even understand the words anymore. You don't like the sound of kids' choirs? Oh, my God. Do you know how many songs? I don't know if if you're old enough or you were politically aware at the time, because you were probably... 15, 16 years old at the beginning of the Obama administration? Yeah, I was like 13. Okay, a little bit. Seventh grade? You you were young is my point. Yeah, eighth grade. I don't know. That song is one of a million that you can find online. It is, it was beyond disturbing. There was artwork celebrating Obama. You've probably seen some of that. Hope, change. Yeah, we got it. And these people have the audacity to, to, to call out some Trump supporters for treating him, quote-unquote, cult-like? Look in the mirror, dude. Go pull up the, uh, what's his name? Hardball. Chris, whatever his name is. The thrill going up my leg. That was an actual clip from an actual serious, quote-unquote, journalist. When he heard Obama speak, he got a thrill going up his leg. Oh, my God. But please, keep waxing poetic about the dangers of cults. Now, I mentioned that earlier poll showing 
Donald Trump way ahead of everybody else. Forty two percent of Iowa GOP primary or uh, caucus voters say that they support Donald Trump. The closest behind him is Ron DeSantis at 19 percent. So 23 point difference between the two. Tim Scott comes in at number three, the senator from South Carolina with nine percent. Now, of course, anything can change, right? This could change on a dime. Perhaps something changes Wednesday during the debate. Of which Donald Trump says he's not going to attend. He made his comment on Truth Social. He said debates. He wasn't going to participate in debates, which is plural. However, he does misspell things sometimes, let's be honest. So maybe he only meant this debate. We'll see. It is, in the words of Kaylee McEnany, former press secretary for Donald Trump, a huge miscalculation on his part. She is 100% correct. The indication is former President Trump will not be here. And the takeaway I have from that is this is a, a huge political yeah. miscalculation, I would say, yep. for him. Um, for two reasons. You give others the opportunity to shine. Uh, you give others two hours to throw lobs at you. And I, I know former President Trump can dance across that debate stage, can defend himself, but you're not there to do it yourself. You're counting yeah. on maybe others fair point. to step in. And, and that, that is a very fair point. She's 100% correct. Because here's the thing I can't figure out. If you right now are, let's say you're a supporter of Chris Christie, okay? that's He got 5% of the vote. Or let's say you're voting for Mike Pence, 6% of the vote. Okay? So let's just go with that, uh, th- that 11%. Where do they go once Chris Christie and Mike Pence drop out, right? At some point... This is a race uh, of 11 or 12. It'll be down to two or three, right? So where do they go? Now, let's just say for the sake of the argument, because the polling still suggests this, it's going to be Donald Trump versus Ron DeSantis. The troubled Ron DeSantis campaign, who's still number two in all of this. Where do the 11% of the voters go for those two candidates? I'm presuming if you're going to vote for Chris Christie or Mike Pence, you're not voting for Donald Trump, or at least you're less likely to vote for Donald Trump. Where does Nikki Haley supporters go? Where do the Tim Scott supporters go? Now, Donald Trump is assuming he's banking on them going to him, the majority of them. And and maybe they will. I don't know. But I do get the sense that there is a growing belief amongst Republicans that While it's Trump's to lose, we still want you to make the case that we still want to see a debate. And by not debating, you end up giving a larger percentage of the news coverage, the spotlight, on everybody else on that stage. And so Ron DeSantis has a lot to gain on Wednesday. Tim Scott, Nikki Haley, a lot to gain. In fact, everyone on that stage will have a lot to gain by being competent, by not undercutting Trump supporters, right? Not throwing them under the bus or insulting them. And just being seen as a viable candidate. That's all they need to do. And without Trump on that stage, Trump is a great debater. (laughs) He's a very good debater. He made mincemeat out of Hillary Clinton. It was actually shocking because I didn't think he was going to do as well as he did. 
and frankly, the same for the second, not the first debate, because he was a little bit too much of a bully. But the second debate with Biden, he did outstanding. He was outstanding. He's going to be seen as cowardly. He's going to be attacked as cowardly. How will the voters react? How will supporters react? I don't know. We're going to find out. Wednesday night, by the way, 6 o'clock, we will be live with our coverage of the debate right here on KTTH. 1-800-465-8770 if you want to send me a text. When we come back, we will dive into (laughs) the latest in transgender controversies. This one, I think, actually, you're going to find rather amusing. It's the Jason Ranch Show. Welcome back to the Jason Rance Show. I am endlessly fascinated by some of the gender identity, let's just call them cultists. Let's stick with that theme. Because some folks are so radical on this issue, it's almost at parody level. It's almost at parody level. This next story, for example, if I didn't tell you it was real, you might think came from the Babylon Bee. It's the American Medical Association under fire for floating taxpayer-funded uterus transplants for biological men. That sounds almost like a Babylon Bee story. Certainly the concept is Babylon Bee-like. In the Journal of Ethics, the AMA made arguments for uterus transplants for transgender patients, including... A discussion as to whether or not the taxpayers, you and I, should pay for it all. It would cost anywhere between $100,000 and $300,000 per procedure, which is incredibly rare, these procedures, which in this case wouldn't do anything because I still think you need to have the other biological parts in order to to carry H. Maybe I do. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't. Maybe maybe I don't know how. I certainly don't know how the uterus works. Don't have much experience. But maybe when it comes to the whole transgender thing, maybe it can work. But I don't think it can. The journal notes that some patients are seeking the procedure to have children, while others are contemplating the surgery to enhance their own femininity and consolidate their identities. Because they know that biology dictates whether or not you're male or female, right? What about intersex? Yeah, the 17 intersex people, I'm not counting them as part of this conversation. With all due respect. They know in their heart, in their brain, that they are merely identifying as a gender that they are not. There's nothing wrong with that. You can identify however it is you want. But it doesn't change the reality that there's such a thing as being male and there's such a thing as being female, and that's it. It is, in fact, binary. Dr. Marty McCary on Fox News had this to say. We have been doing in medicine uterus transplants in patients who have no uterus at birth or had uterine cancer. There's been about 25 done mostly at Baylor. And these are done for women who struggle with infertility for good medical reasons. But now there's a movement within the American Medical Association to say, let's do this in biologic men or biologic men who identify as women. 
imagine for a moment you're you're a serious doctor, you're with a serious organization, printing in a serious medical journal the idea that to enhance a transgender woman's femininity and to consolidate their identities, you would even utter the idea of a uterus transplant and you hope to be taken seriously and not seen as just a crazy far left activist. They're delusional if that's what they think, that they're going to be taken seriously. And at that point, just like the patients they want to treat, they are identifying as serious medical professionals, but they're not actually serious medical professionals. And as Dr. Makari points out, there could be research dollars spent on legitimate issues around transgender health care. Like there's things we can actually look into. Such as, oh, does gender affirming care actually work? Because all the studies seem to indicate that they don't, except for the ones that are propaganda that are being pushed by folks for with a political agenda. Maybe we can look into something like that. Instead of funding those studies, they've chosen, chosen to take an activist position. And it's very hard to do research in this field, Ainsley, because the activists have run a lot of people out of town. The reasonable doctors and objective scientists have been run out of town. Even recently, Mayo and Jefferson have fired people over simply suggesting that we need better research. <laughs> Again, imagine wanting to be taken seriously when you live in a world that fires people who says, maybe we should research this rather than just simply, quote unquote, affirm someone's identity. Now, there's a super interesting story out of the world of chess, which I'm obsessed with the chess app. It's just called chess that I play nonstop and usually get humiliated by what I'm assuming is some 13-year-old in Romania. That's what it seems like, the way they, they play like jerks. They're too aggressive. They're just, oh, I'm going to take your queen from my queen. Stop trading the queen. Anyway, a top global chess official is saying, okay, we're going to do some more research into whether or not factors like hormone levels and physical endurance might have an impact on players' abilities during chess tournaments. She's saying this because the World Chess Federation just made a decision to block transgender women from official women's events. Now, I don't know why I never even contemplated this coming up as a potential issue. <laughs> and I don't know why I find it mildly amusing. It's mean for me to react that way, but that's how I reacted. I'm sorry. I just, the idea that to me, I didn't think of it because I didn't really think it mattered. It's a board game. It's that, that's it. Why would you do that? Like we're playing Monopoly, but we're not letting transgender people play. Like that would it just it just never occurred to me. But then I started to think about it, and it makes total sense. Men and women's brains are different. I actually weirdly think women would have an advantage over men if they're playing someone who's transgender because of very specific differences between men and women. I don't know about the endurance aspect of it. I know that obviously chess can take a long time unless you're playing, you know, speed chess or there's some sort of uh, limit on this. But I, I looked it up. Some of these things I knew, like a man's brain is larger by about 10% than a woman's brain. That part doesn't matter. So we're told by politically uh, astute folks uh, that it makes no difference between the intellect. Obviously men are smarter than women. I'm kidding. But didn't you, I forgot that men's, because it used to be a put down about how, well, men's brains are bigger than the little tiny fragile lady brains. You never heard that as a, as a stereotype? 
I, I don't think I have. Well, men's are about 10% bigger. It doesn't actually make any difference as far as it concerns intellect. But a woman, although recent studies might undercut this finding, the hippocampus might be larger than men's. And this is critical of learning and memorization. That obviously can play a role in chess, but that would benefit the woman. A man's amygdala, which is how you experience emotions and the the recollection of those uh, emotional experiences, bigger for men than women. The inferior parietal lobule, which tends to be larger in men, is linked with mathematical problems, estimating time and judging speed. It's an interesting conversation. It's the Jason Rancho.